You're listening to episode 55 of Paz de Chipotle. I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food history writer, cook, and author. And on this podcast, I explore the gastronomic traditions of Mexico and bring together the voices of cooks, authors, and entrepreneurs who build cross-cultural bridges around the world, championing Mexican food. To subscribe to my newsletter and find more information about my books and work, please go to passagepotle.com or check this episode's notes. You can help the show by rating, reviewing it, and sharing it with all your friends using your favorite podcast app. Every cuisine has its heroes, from grannies, aunties, butchers, and bakers. They all have a place in the way local gastronomy is shaped. With its vast and complex human and natural geography, Mexico has a plethora of food traditions that have been the product of resilience, exchange, and creativity. 63 years ago, Diana Kennedy arrived in Mexico, young, wide-eyed, and insatiably curious, she found herself bewitched by Mexico's regional cuisines and realized that by exploring the foodways, that was the key to understand how food is a vehicle for communities to organize and build a sense of identity, belonging, and even shared spirituality. Diana spent decades traveling thousands of dusty roads, mountains, towns, visiting markets, allotments, talking to cooks, farmers, and documenting with precision and passion the ingredients, recipes, and stories of hundreds of dishes that were compiled and published through her nine books. Today, the 97-years-old evangelist of Mexico's traditional food is the undisputed authority in Mexico's edible biodiversity, traditional cooking techniques and recipes, and we are only but beginning to understand and dimension the relevance of her legacy. And then come in documentarist and film director Elizabeth Carroll, who took a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to create a deep and intimate documentary about Diana Kennedy, which takes us with her in a moving, raw, and powerful film that gives us a unique access into the thoughts, passions, drives, and stories of a lifetime on the road, documenting the trail of flavors, recipes, and safekeeping the love stories that Mexicans tell to each other through food. In this interview that you are about to listen, I talked with Elizabeth about the complex process of making this film, Elizabeth's personal journey through it, and the many life lessons that Diana and her legacy still have for us all. Due to the global pandemic, there won't be a cinematic release for the film, but on June 19th, Diana Kennedy, Nothing Fancy, will be released on iTunes and Apple TV. In the accompanying blog post of this episode, I have put together videos and links about the film and, indeed, a list of the unmissable books of Diana Kennedy. So check this notes episode on your podcast app to find all the links. I really, truly hope that you enjoy this episode. Thank you. 
Elizabeth. I'm so happy to finally sit down with you. I'm really, really thankful and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Uh, I've been so much looking forward to this. Well, many things have happened since I first drafted the outline for this interview. You know, I think that in light of the ongoing global pandemic we are facing, I was thinking about this this morning because much of the work that you did is more about the human experience. Yeah, I mean, um, it is hard to say because I agree with you that with the global pandemic, it's changing everything about perspective and perception, at least in my experience and the experience of a lot of people I know. But I think that in terms of the film, I mean, in, in retrospect, now that it's finished, I feel really lucky for the ability to have been able to finish it. I had a strong support system eventually, but I think for the majority of it, I was just continuing to do a lot of that work on my own. I had never made a movie before, you know, was sort of graced with this very serendipitous opportunity of meeting Diana. And I was like, God, I would love to interview this person. And then 48 hours later, I was somehow at a public event where she was doing a book signing and it all just happened very quickly. And so it felt to me in the beginning that there was like an element of magic involved. Once I realized that that was present, it felt as though I was almost being trusted to do something bigger than myself. The fact that we connected, you know, we had a natural connection right away. And the fact that she was willing to open up to me and, and to trust me sort of at face value was a gift that I couldn't squander. It definitely altered my perception of what is possible, because if you define everything by only what you have done in your life, then you might never accomplish the things that you don't know you can do. That's a great takeaway. I think it's a really good lesson to challenge ourselves. And I think that the fact that you being so young, meeting this woman whose life really has been nothing but breaking the mold. I think that's where you connected. Possibly, yeah. I mean, I definitely saw, I felt such a strong connection to her when we first met. I've always been drawn to really strong women and strong female personalities. I definitely, you know, was enamored with Diana for that reason, even though she's kind of terrifying at times and is very intimidating. I don't know, something about that similar strength maybe is something that unified us, even though, you know, like I said, I didn't have the resume of strength. I didn't have a reason to believe that I was that way other than just feeling or sensing. You know, she's lived um, three times my lifetime and she's accomplished a lot more than I have. But there were a lot of reasons why she could have never done any of the things she did, but she just always kept pushing. Going back a little bit to the format that you chose to do this work, which is a documentary. If there might be many people in the audience who haven't seen it, we'll listen to this conversation. There won't be any spoilers. You know, we'll all see it with fresh eyes. So that's fine. But the point about the format is that it's so, so much more flexible and noble compared to other formats. You you spent nearly six years with her. I cannot begin to imagine what that was for both of you. It must have been incredible and tough. This film, where people see it or those who have seen it, uh, I'm sure it will resonate with a lot of us in many different levels. But did you know what you were getting yourself into when you started? Like, I'm going to be spending, you know, <laughs> six years in this woman's uh, house, like day no. in and day out. Mm, to clarify, I worked on the film 
for a little over six years, but I wasn't with Diana all that time. We basically did one shoot at her house per year because a lot of the filmmaking process for me was fundraising. I started with nothing and I had to raise all the money over that course of that time. And as a first time filmmaker, especially as a woman uh, with no track record, it was really difficult to get you know anybody to invest in the film because independent films are a huge financial risk anyway, even for an accomplished filmmaker. I think that that was a huge part of the process for me that a lot of people don't really talk about very much. I think for me, that was an interesting facet of the experience because that was the hardest part by far. I would have had it finished much, much earlier, but that would have yielded and created a totally different film um, because I wouldn't have had the chance to get to know her as well over time. And she, you know, might not have said a lot of the things that she ended up saying at the end of the film had we concluded three years earlier. So I think it's kind of important that it took so long because there was even more trust every time we would go back down to her house, you know, for the fourth or fifth shoot or whatever. I think that there was an added layer of understanding of like, oh yeah, Elizabeth is still here and she's still doing this. And that added to some element of trust between us. But let's say we only saw each other two or three times a year. I would really only have that concentrated time with her, you know, when I would raise money to go down and film at her house and then, you know, have to go back and raise more money and do it again. Did I know what I was getting myself into at the beginning? Absolutely not. I had no idea. I mean, in the beginning, I just wanted to interview Diana. I just wanted wanted her to be part of this broader project that I had just come up with. My own desires for it were still extremely vague, but it all just sort of happened like lightning. It was like, oh, I want to do this. Oh, Diana Kennedy. Oh, wouldn't I love to meet her? Oh, she's going to be here tomorrow. Oh, wow. Okay. So I didn't really have time to flesh out this big treatment of what I wanted the film to be. It was just sort of like once I started learning more about her, I was like, oh my God, we need to film this woman right now. Time is running out. She's 91. Who knows how long we have with her? So we need to do everything in our power just to get there and get the camera rolling. But yeah, if you had told me uh, at the end of 2013 that I would be finishing this film at the beginning of 2019, I would have been shocked. I would have been like, okay, well, maybe it's not the best idea. (laughs) (laughs) But that's very interesting what you said, like that the lack of funding bought you time to capture, but also to experience her in different ways and digest it. And of course, in the meantime, you would have uh, spoken and sold this idea to donors and founders of the project, which of course must have drawn a lot of questioning. Trying to sell it requires a good level of convincing from first yourself. If you're not convinced, you're not going to sell it. I'm 100% sure that the way you pitched it to the first person was absolutely different to the way you did it to the last one. Not only because there would have been 20 more people saying, I want in as well. Now, If you were to start another similar project, would you do it the same way? Yeah, I think I think at least for a lot of the films that I've seen, documentaries that I love, like character studies, the really intimate ones that obviously take a lot of time. Um, I would never do another project the same way. There's just no way that that would ever happen. A lot of the aspects of doing this project this way was based on scarcity of funding and having, you know, no prior experience. So for me, that was a detriment. I didn't want to take my time. You know, I wasn't I wasn't trying to take six years. You know, I obviously I wouldn't take it back. I'm unbelievably grateful for this experience because it gave me the tools that I need to go and do another project 
more effectively and efficiently and but it's more like now having you know experience where I can prove that I'm capable of doing something like this to people who would give me another another opportunity um, and being more confident and just saying you know this is what I want to do and this is what I need and can you help me do it at the beginning of the Diana Kennedy project, I was really scared of people telling me no, but then I became sort of desensitized to it because everybody was telling me no. I don't know. I, I want to do something else. I think that the pandemic is changing a lot of the ideas that I had. And I think that I want to focus on food systems and, you know, the restaurant industry is dying in front of us right now. And that's heartbreaking. I know the passion and the intensity and the, you know, very slight margins. I think that that's a realm that I would like to focus on next. Well, just have to start capturing interviews of what people, people's reactions in real time and what they're thinking. Yeah, I know. Exactly. Good luck with that. Absolutely. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> now moving on from the format now and going to like the subjective part of it. The work of Diana reminds me a lot of the work of another British author, uh, Elizabeth David, mm. who pretty much many consider the sort of first modern food diarist who wrote for public consumption, not, not for her own, about her travels and food, and pretty much changed the food landscape in Britain. You know, she did so by capturing her own interaction with people, with cuisines, with places across Europe. And Obviously, I don't know if Diana read Elizabeth. I mean, they were contemporaneous, sort of. Oh, yeah, she definitely did. She loves loves Elizabeth David. I can see a lot of parallel lines there, of course. Her own work started for what she has said, from this kind of pure state of curiosity, trying to take in as much as possible. And she just really took on these chance to see everything with fresh eyes from the first time. Mm -hmm. And she rapidly took this very complex angle, but very rich, to focus everything through a lens of the anthropological and sociological aspects, and also environmental key aspects of, of the food traditions in, in Mexico that she observed. So I think that holistic view is what shaped her work and why she became a very self-aware voice that communicates all her findings. She always, I think, maintained this view from the inside out and from the outside looking in. You also started with an approximation from the outside, as an American yourself, looking into the work of another foreign person in Mexico, although Diana's heart is as Mexican as aguacate, <laughs> I think it's a very meta work. You're looking her, looking at us, and we are all looking everything to, to the prism of your work. I think that view from the outsider is so powerful and we need it so much precisely to see all the things that are normalized. So I don't know how much of that relationship of both of you being outsiders, how these meta-observation helped construct your work. Yeah, I mean, I think I felt some insecurity about that, definitely. You know, what role do I have telling a story about Mexico? I'm not Mexican, and Diana's not Mexican either. I was nervous about how that would be received by Mexican people. I wanted to find out and to discover how Mexican people really felt about Diana, at least a majority of them. I know a lot of culinary experts and cooks and chefs in Mexico really like Diana and appreciate what she's done for Mexican culture in terms of solidifying it in history and creating a vault within which all of this information can be stored and protected. But then again, she compiled 
compiled all this information, like you said, with the eyes of an outsider, saw it more anthropologically and scientifically, and then was basically brought, you know, you can use the word authentic Mexican cuisine to the English speaking world. But it's delicate because there can be Mexican people who are like, okay, I'm sorry, we don't need you. You know, we can do this ourselves. This is our food. You know, we don't need you to ring the bell for the rest of the world. But then again, that's really not my arena. It's not my jurisdiction. I don't know what it's like to grow up in Mexican culture and grow up with this food in your family and having Mexican bloodlines. So I think I definitely was fascinated with the way that Diana became assimilated to Mexican culture over time and committed herself to this work because she loves Mexico and she loves Mexican people. And she's honestly, those are kind of the only people in the world that she's still consistently nice to. (laughs) But I just tried to be kind of gentle and not insert any of my own biases or my own opinions into the film and just try to demonstrate Diana in her glory and in her daily life and just see sort of what that felt like and what that looked like. I think that for the most part, she's regarded as a proper national treasure in Mexico. Yeah. Also, I think that if you don't have a few haters, you're probably not doing things that right. That's a great point. I agree with that. (laughs) You can't make everybody happy and that's fine. As a Mexican, why I think it's so important to have voices from the outside that are not patronizing or overinterpret what they see? Much of Mexico's evolution and sort of coming to terms and maturing our own mixed race cultural heritage has come from how we have benefited ourselves from the view of outsiders. And I think what Diana has done with her work is helping us discover the complexity of Mexico's foodways and food traditions. What your film achieves then is putting in perspective the work of Diana comes full circle because in this day and age when we are so obsessed with just the food and fetishizing, just dishes. And we dehumanize all these cultural expressions. There's no human element there. You are pretty much disrupting that and present that human aspect of her work so she doesn't become a fetish herself. Yeah, love that. Do you want to be my my PR representative? I do. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's like, that's the best way I've heard it put. I hope, I hope that's what happens, yes. <laughs> you were telling me about how interested you were before starting the project. You were interested about the gender aspects of the transmission of culinary knowledge, particularly in Mexico. At least that was initially. So I don't know if that changed. Maybe it broadened during the actual filming. And it's absolutely true that the act of cooking and feeding in traditional cuisines, generally speaking, and in Mexico, is a feminine territory. As Diana herself often pointed out, the role of men in the preparation of agricultural activities and particular aspects of conviviality and community bonding, of course, is hugely relevant. But I am curious to know which were the aspects that you initially wanted to research and what did you learn from Diana's own work and your own uh, work during the filming? What did it revealed to you? Yeah, okay. Initially, in 2013, I wanted to do sort of an anthropological study on the matriarchy of passing down food traditions in Mexico. I was really just at the beginning of that understanding what that might mean or what that might look like. And I wanted to look at Mexico first 
as a culture where I knew that that was self-evident, where grandmothers would pass down to their grandchildren these food traditions, and that especially in Mexico, it's sort of like this old guard who had this responsibility of transmitting history through food, and then perhaps create some sort of model with which to look at other cultures of the world, you know, historical transmission through food. That was, you know, the broad start and wanting to see what what patterns were evident through interviewing a bunch of different people and seeing what came up. I was looking for Mexican women and then I found Diana. She was 91 years old at the time, um, had already written nine cookbooks and, you know, was considered an academic expert on Mexican cuisine. And so I knew that she was a white woman and I was like, well, this isn't really what I'm looking for. How authentic is this really? But then, of course, once I started learning more about her and I knew I wanted her to be part of this because her voice was really important aspect of this. I knew I wanted to interview her, but I didn't know how to find her. I was at a coffee shop and I left and went to the bookstore to look at one of her cookbooks. And I drove into the parking lot, I don't know, half an hour later. And I looked at the marquee and it said, book signing with Diana Kennedy tomorrow. What are the chances? And I was just like, what? Then it was like, oh, God, like, I might have kind of this cosmic responsibility, you know, went in and I was like, is this really happening? This is tomorrow. And they were like, yeah, yeah, just write an email to her. Here's her publicist information. And I was like, okay, wow. So I wrote this email to her that night. And I was like, if you would grant me, you know, the time to be able to just interview you for a little while about this subject, you can be as involved or as not involved as you want. Um, and then when I walked into the event the next day, I saw her at, at the front door and I was like, hi, Diana, I'm Elizabeth. She turns around. And she's like, oh, yes, you're the woman who wants to make a film about me. <laughs> and in my head, I was like, well, that's not exactly what I said in the email. I really just requested like a five minute interview with you. But I mean, yeah, I'll make a movie about you, I guess. And then, I mean, once I spent 10 or 20 minutes with her, I realized that she was worth making a movie about. Uh, going back to your original interest of, of the feminine role in the transmission of food knowledge. Did you get to talk about that with her? I mean, I certainly asked, asked her about it in various interviews that we did. You know, this project obviously became less about that and more about just about Diana, her personality, her character. And that became the heart of the film, utilizing her as a prism for that world through her eyes and how she experienced it. I think that her passion, her passion was the thing that really opened all the doors for her. You know, I think that she was so invested and people saw that she really, truly wanted to ingratiate herself to Mexican culture. And, and she happened to be an excellent cook. I imagine that it was one of the only things she was actually gentle about was making sure that people she could make Mexican men or women who, whom she met and wanted to ask if she could come into their house and watch them make a recipe and learn how to do it from them directly. I think that that required a great amount of trust and being kind and being gentle and making sure that people were comfortable with her presence and that she wasn't there to exploit anyone. She was there to make sure that the history was being recorded. I think one of the big connections that she provides us with, us Mexicans and non-Mexicans, is that through her work, we are all invited to this nourishing intimacy of people's kitchens and, and the way they feed the people they love. Yes, 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 exactly. It's, it's only but, you know, human stories upon human stories behind her work. That's what she's actually collecting, that human experience through food. But since you, since the film was released and with all the many roundtables that you attended and all the many public events, you have had the opportunity to harvest a lot of 
conversations and questions and feedback from people. What was their read about seeing Mexican food through that perspective? Um, I think a lot of the feedback I got, the ways that people have, at least in, especially in the U.S., um, have seen Mexico represented in the media has been in a really negative light um, through drug trafficking and things like that. So one of the goals for me with the film was to showcase how incredibly beautiful Mexico is and how warm and, and wonderful it feels just to be there. I think that people got how committed Diana is to Mexico. By the end, I think a lot of people are like, wow, you know, she really has committed herself to this this cuisine and this country and this culture in a in a unique way. You know, it was I think it's clear to people that Diana did not set out to exploit Mexican food or Mexican culture uh, through the work that she did. In terms of the, the creative process, but also the business side of it, because you had to be on every side of this project, why don't you help us understand more what is the role of a director and then how did you ultimately have to readjust your own expectations to make this happen and which are like essential takeaways from from this experience from a directoral point of view i think that the one thing that i know i did correctly was hire people who were more experienced than me to help me learn quickly because I knew, you know, I had my relationship and I knew what I wanted to do and I had a vision for the project, but I didn't have the real world experience or the vocabulary that made it so much easier to communicate that vision. So I think having to learn very quickly on the job and um, making sure that learning curve was steep and efficient was really important. As a director, being really clear about what you want is the most important thing. You have to be driven even if you don't know if the decision you're making is the right one you have to make the decision so in terms of wanting to make sure that we stayed on track while respecting her authority that was a delicate balance my instinct was to default to diana i wanted her to be comfortable and then i think once our relationship developed and once we became more comfortable with each other and there was more trust she eventually respected me more for that but it was it was definitely just trial and error for most of it So in essence, the whole project for you on a personal and directorial level was a lesson in leadership. Yes, 100%. Being a first-time filmmaker and wanting so badly to make sure that it got out to an audience, I think that there were a lot of things that I had to learn by doing. Some of them worked out really well and some of them didn't work out very well. I'm extremely grateful for every part of it because I had to make those mistakes so that I won't make them again. Can you share any of those mistakes without compromising anyone? Um, there were many points where I felt kind of helpless around knowing that I, I was in the process of making the film. I needed to raise more money. And it was just a lot of time spent convincing people. But, you know, there was a lot of miscalculation that I made in terms of how expensive it would actually end up being um, and being responsible for that. The lessons for me that were most difficult were definitely financial with this project. One of Diana's big concerns was and has always been the environmental aspects and the native crops and safekeeping seeds that are native to Mexico, etc., etc. During the time that your film was you know, in the making and then post-production and all that, Several things happened, including safekeeping her manuscripts, field notes. I want to say, sadly, they didn't stay in Mexico for all the wrong reasons. But I'm very happy that they ended up in the custody of a university in uh, Texas, if I'm correct. 
Yes, San Antonio. All of Mexico's traditional food system and cuisine is all so absolutely tied up with ritualistic aspects and the relationship of people with nature, specifically in rural areas where she spent so much time. For her, you know, this aspect was very important. And I know for you personally as well, I'm interested what happened behind the camera. <laughs> and if you had the chance to talk about these concerns of hers, how that resonated with you as well. Mm. I think I was fascinated with the way that she had done the work that she did because I wish that I could have done something like that. So I think there was like a personal level of, of interest and borderline obsession with you know, her ability to do that. I mean, it happened at a very specific time. You know, she moved to Mexico in the 1950s and she realized that there was not a lot of documentation going on with ingredients and recipes. Whereas now there's a vast wealth of documentation basically readily available at our fingertips. You know, the work that's available to be done with global food systems now is different and just as important. I think the the more often we see these type of materials, these type of documentaries that cover all these aspects. I mean, I absolutely celebrate the fact that there's so many documentaries and programs about food, you know, talking with the actual chefs and working us through the creative process and all that. But I think we're again sort of falling into the risk of glorifying the image of the chef. I don't think they need more glorifying. And there's very few people like Chef Dan Baba or Chef uh, Jose Andres who are actually putting the interest where it should be in the people, in the production, in what happens behind and before everything reaches your plate. No? I can completely agree with that. There's a total over-glorification of chefs. You're right, we don't need that because it goes hand in hand with glorifying the experience of being able to dine at a Michelin-starred restaurant in the middle of nowhere that you have to travel to and you have to be able to afford to have that meal. And that's only something that the top 1% of the world can afford to do. That's a story about a very specific kind of culture and it's the culture of privilege. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Going uh, back a bit on your own experience, the documentary as a format is very good at allowing us to create a very specific form of storytelling, this close-up study of a person and the way they reflect on their own life. In her case, it's a very big hindsight. Obviously, I'm sure you had many opportunities to, to have that very intimate contact. And I'm not, I'm not going to ask for you to, to share that, that is only yours and hers. But how was that experience for you now in hindsight? Mm, I don't know. <laughs> it's so complex to, I don't know, examine. I feel like while I was in it, it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, this is how it is. And, and this is who I am. And that's who she is. And this is what we're doing. And it was so action-based and action-driven. It was all about looking at the timeline and knowing what else needed to happen in order to accomplish the final goal. And now that it's done and I've had all this time for reflection it's all still hitting me I have a lot of respect for Diana and she profoundly changed my life in every way I think that the lessons that I've learned from her specifically and from just the experience in general will continue to ripple across my brain for a long time across your existence so let's say you're still processing yes I'm still processing <laughs> <laughs> But that's, that's a good sign, I suppose, of, of the impact it made. Of all the things she shared, well, she's British, so she's very pragmatic. What does she worry about 
she doesn't strike me as someone who cares about what people will say about her, but about what she produced. What does she worry? Um, well, now that her research materials are with the University of Texas at San Antonio, they're safe, essentially. They're vaulted, I assume. She feels that way. But I think that she's concerned about her house and what will happen to it. Um, I know that she has plans for it that she is not sharing. She's spent 50 years of her life collecting and cultivating and building that beautiful environment that is ecologically harmonious with nature and it's architecturally stunning and private and very much Diana. And so I think that her space is so incredibly personal to her and it's an homage to how much she loves Mexico. Her house is this living testament to her life experience. Probably if I were her, and she says this in the movie, that one of her biggest fears is that that will not be cared for when she's gone. And I'm sure she is doing the work to make sure that it's preserved properly and respectfully. I'm, I'm listening to you thinking about culturally significant houses. Frida Kahlo's house came to mind. One of the things that I've always felt when I visit that house, which is it's pretty much an extension of her creation and her imagination. One of the very sad things I think about the Casa Azul is that it's a mausoleum. Mm -hmm. It's dead. That house is dead. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, you, you are you know blown away by the beauty and the color. And they're not telling mm. any story. It's just like, here's a bunch of objects, artifacts and furniture that belong to this couple. The end. So I, I understand her concern, obviously. And I and I also hope that not only her house, but her legacy doesn't go to collect dust in, in the memory of Mexicans. I, I even hope more that her legacy continues feeding our knowledge and curiosity. Um, we're sort of now beginning to wrap up the interview. I was going to ask next, what are your plans for the future? But obviously the future is beginning to look more and more different day by day. Like from my initial question, you had some other project about a traditional drink from Peru, a fermented drink called chicha. And you already had like some footage. It was like a little bit waiting to be finished. Are you going back to that? Um... I'm definitely curious about doing that. Um, there's talk of potentially turning that into a series about beverages around the world. But I mean, considering what's happening right now in the world, that seems really trivial in comparison and like not, not important enough anymore. You know, I think that Jose Andres is a huge influence on me, role model and leader, someone I hugely respect. And I think that if more people in positions of privilege or power or influence utilized their power the way that he did, we would be living in a very different world. I think people need to know what he's doing. I would like to move in a direction where I'm either documenting or doing the kind of work that he's doing. I didn't even know that you were so passionate about him. But honestly, that's like the first name that popped in my head when uh, thinking about the type of response that has come from the food industry in these past weeks. I think Jose is such an amazing representation of what it looks like to adapt, to have one singular mission, which is to feed people in need. And then it doesn't matter whether it's major natural disaster or it's a global pandemic. He is figuring out how to make it happen no matter what. Those are the kinds of people we need in this world. 
It's a big leap from, like you said, you know, pondering what is important and what is not. And definitely we should all be questioning our day-to-day decisions and, and what can we do to help. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Rocio. Obviously, I wish for you and your future projects to to find everything you need, obviously, for you to, to make the most of it. You said that the... That the, the documentary is yet to be released worldwide as it was planned. Um, so the film was purchased by um, Greenwich Entertainment in North America. And there was a plan to um, have a theatrical release all around the U.S. Unfortunately, with the pandemic, we had to cancel that. And the film will go straight to video on demand. In June 19th is the day that it will become available to purchase and rent on iTunes and Apple. Yeah, so basically it'll be available to rent June 19th. Right. Please uh, let the people know where could they follow you to contact you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my personal page is ebeth on Instagram, three E's, B-E-T, three H's. And then the film itself is Nothing Fancy Film on Instagram. Um, the new website just came up, dianakennedymovie.com. And that will be the right place for updates. I mean, on uh, YouTube, you can see the trailer and there's a few reels I'm gonna make a special blog post for this interview and I'm gonna put as many clips as I can find. Well, Elizabeth, thank you again. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Keep in touch. <laughs> thank you. Bye bye. All right. Bye bye. Thank you for listening. This episode was written and produced by me, Rocio Carvajal. If you want to enjoy more extra content about this episode and get Diana Kennedy's list of unmissable books, check this episode's notes where you will also find the links to connect and follow the accounts of Elizabeth Carroll and the film's official channels. Your support means everything. Every time you recommend this show to a friend, my ebooks, or work, you help me continue producing this project that is free for everyone to enjoy around the world. The next episode of the show is a much requested interview that I finally recorded with Mexican corn activist Rafael Mier, who is the founder and director of Fundación Tortilla de Maíz Mexicana, which is a Mexican charity dedicated to protect native varieties of corn and promote the traditional methods to prepare and make Mexican corn tortillas. And the episode will be available in Espanol and and in English, so it will take some extra craft to prepare it, a lot of post-production for me ahead, so please bear with me because it's going to be so worth it. Remember, you can always reach out to me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, or email. You can write me to hello at pazichipotle.com. Well, that's it for today, my friends. Until the next time.